Good morning, everyone. My name is Jason Boker. I will be reading Exodus 3, 7 through 15. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in, who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children, out of, children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought, in, brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you, I have observed you and what has been done to you in, in, in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Dear Father, we, uh, we just continue to worship you. You are God, we're not. You are a holy, you are righteous, you are indescribable, you're uncontainable. Lord, you did, as we sung, place the stars in the sky, every single one, every, all the billions, and you bring them out one by one, you call them all by name, and you stretch it all out like a tent in front of you, and you hold the universe in the palm of your hands, surely the nations are like a drop on the bucket. The, the nations like dust on the scale. We are like grasshoppers, your word says, in comparison. Yet you draw near to us. You love us. You care for us. You brought us here. Thank you for letting us be here to, as one body with one voice to exalt your name above all names. Um, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for your word. Um, Lord, would you speak? Uh, through me and through these words. And, and Lord, um, I just pray, Lord, let the meditation of my heart, the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. Oh God, my rock, my redeemer, our redeemer, our rock. And, we, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So uh, we are continue our series, Name Above All Names is what it's called, and we are, uh, we are looking at one, maybe the name above all names, Yahweh. Um, I am that I am, and, uh, and I just, I just I'm, I'm, I've been feeling the weight of this, I said this in first service, I've been feeling the weight of, uh, of and the, the gravity of this. I mean, how do you describe the indescribable? How do you, how do you see um, what, it, what you can't fully grasp? You can't wrap your mind around. And that's, but God, God has given us his word. And so that's how we do it, right? We look in his word and I'm excited, but I feel like, wow, this is like, 
you know, this could be, this is like every message till glory could be like the plumbing, the depths of who God is. And actually for the rest of eternity, because he's infinite, we will never fully, I mean, we have eternity to figure out who he is. That's what heaven, I mean, I can't wait um, for that. Um, so, so today we're just going to get a glimpse, another glimpse, and we just pray that God would show us his glory as Moses would, um, prayed. And so, but first, before we dive in, I just have a couple questions. I have a question for you. Um, by a show of hands, how many people in here are to-do list people? <laughs> to-do list people. Okay. A lot of you are really sick. Yeah, to-do list people. I married a to-do list person, and uh, consequently I've become a to-do list person. But I'm good at making the to-do list, but not so good at like taking things off the to-do list, right? Yeah, um, I can make it. And then that's not the important part of a to-do list, right? Making it. It's the taking things off of it. Um, it's the reducing it. Um, I looked at my phone this morning. I have 29 items on my reminder thing. I think tomorrow I'll probably still have 29 items. I think last week I probably did. Sometimes I'll look at it, sometimes I don't. I go through these phases. Um, do, do you guys, when you, when you came this morning, do you feel defeated in some way in this area? Do you feel like you just can't keep up? You can't keep your head above water. You got too much to do. The, your to-do list is too long. You don't have enough time to do it. Keeping ahead of the game, keeping your head above water. You don't have enough, I hate to use the word, bandwidth, capacity, um, or maybe, maybe you're good at to-do lists. Maybe, um, like some people in this room, uh, I know are really good at to-do lists. You probably make it all the way through, or maybe there's only one or two left. Uh, maybe for you, you're, 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 the hard thing is like not just the things in your to-do list, but changing the things in your to-do list to other things that you would rather have be there. Not things you have to do, but things you want to do. Things that you wish you could do to maximize your potential, to be, uh, the, the word we all love, deliberate, to be intentional with everything you do, to maximize your potential, what God's given you in this world. Maybe that's your challenge. You can do all this stuff you have to do, but like, but what's left? And, and, and do you feel, does that feel, does it feel like you don't have enough time and, and you don't have enough energy in your life to do all that you need to do with all the purpose you need to do it, maximizing your potential, like there's no possible way? Does that sound like you? Is that how you feel? Because if you're honest, I mean, I ask a lot of people in this room, how are you doing? The first thing that comes out of your mouth is busy. Um, is that how you feel? If that's you this morning, let me encourage you. You're right. You don't have enough time to do all that you need to do. You don't. I hope that's encouraging to you this morning. Um, you don't, actually. You don't. It's, despite all the books, despite all the seminars you can go to, we live in a broken world with limited time, limited resources, and you can't do everything that's before you. You can't. Um, let me state the obvious for a bit. We live in a culture that's all about function, utility, usefulness, action, doing, productivity, efficiency. Those are great words for some of us, regardless of your personality. Uh, those, are, those are the words our culture loves. When this culture looks at the world, the people in it, and the things those people produce in it, the culture ascribes value and worth to those things primarily based upon their productivity, their usefulness. Why is this? Because we're consumers. Americans are the locusts of the world. We consume. We're the biggest consumers. We want what we want when we want it. One of my favorite Seinfeld episodes, um, George and Jerry are talking, and George says to Jerry, maybe you've seen it, I just want, why, why can't I just want what I want when I want it? Is that so selfish? And Jerry says, actually, that's the definition of selfish. Um, that's who we are. We want what we want when we want it. We expect it. We want flights to leave on time. Lori and I just got back from uh, um, Portland, uh, Oregon, um, on a from at a worship conference, and we came in late last night. And you know, even though the billboard, or the the thing, the signboard at the Portland airport said on time, the gate had no plane. There's an appalling lack of airplane at the end of the gate. Um, and so we could have walked off it. Nothing would have happened. We had to wait. It said on time, but it wasn't. We expected it to be there. Why wasn't it? Everyone there was frustrated. 
We get on the plane. We get to DIA. Thank God. And we land. And there's nobody there to unload the plane. We had to sit there and wait. And I saw in the, in the cockpit, or not the cockpit, I wasn't there, the, the, the places where the seats are, the fuselage part, um, people in the plane just hitting that little button, the call button. Oh, and like the little orange lights and the sound would go ding, ding. And it, it just kind of come. And, and, the, and the, the flight attendants and the captain, every two minutes was like, hey, people, please be patient. You know, we're waiting for a crew. They're going to come, I promise. And people, as if that button helped them get to their destination quicker, they kept because they're impatient. Why, and, and people were yelling out literally, this is unacceptable. This isn't helping. What you're telling me on the intercom is not helping me. So they keep on pushing the button as if that's going to help them. This is the culture we live in. And the problem is not so much that God's put us here, because God did put us here. Acts 17, he put us here for this time in this culture. It's not that we're in the culture. The problem is that the culture gets in us. The culture seeps into us. And you in this room and me in this room, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, you're a good Christian, like you love Jesus, that's awesome. It still creeps in, doesn't it? We still expect our Starbucks to be the right temperature with the right amount of foam and fat and content, the concoction. And we, we expect it. And if it doesn't happen, we demand it to be better. That's why the phrase first world problems is coming up in this culture everywhere. First world problems, but we kind of laugh it off. But it is true. Like, we have first world problems. We saw the walk for water. You know, like, we're, that's the culture we live in. So how do we deal with it? How do we, how do we deal with it? The other effect of living in this culture and what it can do when it's in us, well, for, first, first what it does is it, 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 we start looking at ourselves and we value and, and have worth of ourselves based on our productivity. How far can I get in that to-do list? The, the further down I get, the better day I have. I feel more valuable when I can contribute to the society. I view myself and my worth, my identity, by how I function in it. That's not good. Um, we view other people and their value based upon their functionality in our life. If they're useful to me, I want them around me. If they're not, I want someone else. That's how our culture, that's the context we live in. We also, here's the other thing, we tend, because of this culture, to view God this way. Um, the other effect is because we're used to getting what we want when we want it from everything and everything around us, we have a tendency to expect the same of God. We start thinking, since everything else works this way, maybe God should too. You know, so God, why can't I get what I want when I want it? Is that too much to ask? So we view God not for who he is, but for what he can do for us and how efficiently and timely he can do it. God is reduced to mainly a dispenser of good gifts. So this morning... We're continuing this series, the name of all names. We've talked about these names of God. We're looking at eight names from the Old Testament in Hebrew. We covered Elohim, uh, the, the maker, creator. Pat, Pat talked about that. And El Olam, uh, God, the eternal one. And then Jake last week talked about El Shaddai, God, the almighty. And this week, Yahweh, the name above all names. Um, it's his personal name. It's his covenantal name. If God had a first name, this would be it. This would be it. Um, and it, it's a being name, not a doing name. It's a being name, not a doing. It's, it's, it's an essence. So we're going to look at that. And I think it's my prayer. It's my hope that as we see him for who he is, we will see. And here's a principle that we're going to. As we see him for who he is. We, we were, uh, sorry, here's the principle. So if you're taking notes, this is where we're going. These are two principles. When we remember who the Lord is, we remember who we aren't. And then principle number two, when we remember what the Lord has done, we remember what we can't do. And that's important for us. And my hope is that we'll be encouraged in how to live this life out um, in this culture. So let's look at that name. And I want to look at that name. Um, if I, I mean, it's inexhaustible, but, but for our purposes, maybe five different angles of what Yahweh means. And then, and then we'll have application at the end. So first, Yahweh. I am that I am. It's the name that God gave Moses at the burning bush and told him, we just read it, that by this name, he is to be remembered how long? throughout all generations. That includes this one. 
God is about to send Moses back to Egypt to deliver his people. God is speaking through a bush that is burning but not consumed. And you know the story because you've seen the movie once every year. Um, Charlton Heston is the voice of God, right? Moses, take off thy sandals. Because, you know, I mean, that voice, that Charlton Heston voice. I love that movie. I've seen it every, every year. Um, you know the story. And that's when God gives his personal name. I am who I am. That's God's name. I am, or it also could be, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. This name in your Bibles more than, is more than any other name for God, um, this, this name, 6,800 times in the Old Testament. It's written in your Bibles as Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D. Whenever you see that, Lord, all caps, it's Yahweh. The best guess as to how to pronounce it in Hebrew is Yahweh. You probably heard Jehovah. Hebrew does not have this J sound, so it's Yahweh is the closest. It also doesn't write vowels, and so no one actually knows exactly how to pronounce it, but that's the closest. So for our purposes, we'll say Yahweh, and so all these names like Yahweh Yireh. It's not Jehovah Jireh, although you can say that if you know what you mean. Yahweh Yireh, Yahweh Tzedkenu. So that's, that's, what, um, that's what we're referring to, Jehovah as you probably have heard. Um, and these two principles we're going we're gonna to draw out from this name, but we're going to talk about these five aspects. So number one, the name Yahweh. What, what the number one thing that the name Yahweh tells us about God is that he is above and beyond all description. Above and beyond all description. So let's try to describe him, right? That's what we're here. Let's try to describe him. He defies description, He's indescribable. He is that he is. He will be what he will be. Yahweh is a name without adjectives because there's really no way we can describe the indescribable. What's an adjective? It's a word uh, that describes another word, right? Everyone's name in here has a description. I was thinking about my family. Um, Lori means the prize, and that's what she is to me. Um, Josiah means Yahweh saves. Josiah is, is a derivative of jo- Joshua and also Yeshua, Jesus' name in Hebrew, Yahweh saves. Zechariah means uh, Yahweh remembers. Zechar. Esther means morning star, taken from the Persian goddess Ishtar. Her name was Hadassah in Hebrew when she was exiled in Persia with her people. They gave her a Persian name. Poor Esther is the only person in her family who has a pagan name. Poor girl. Christian means, my name, Christian means Christ follower. A lot of you have that name. Maybe not given by your parents, but you are a Christian. You're a Christ follower. Poor Esther. Uh, everything that comes from him in creation can be described with adjectives, descriptors from creation. You can only describe creation by comparing it with creation. But how do you describe the creator? How do you do that? Isaiah 40, 18 through 25 says, Who is like our God? Or to what can you compare him? The answer, nothing. Because he made Everything out of nothing, ex nihilo. Um, he is outside of creation. He is. He is other than. That's the first thing, above and beyond description. Number two, the second thing uh, the name Yahweh tells us about God is that he is self-existence. He was never created. He never had a beginning. He doesn't end. He is, has been, will be. Conjugate that word, that, the to be verb, any way you want. He is. He just is, always existed from eternity past to eternity future, which is a linear way to describe something that can't be described linearly. He is. He is other than. He was never created. He never had a beginning. He doesn't have an end. There's no amount of English words that can describe it. He is the only one who doesn't have a because attached to him. I am here because I'm supposed to preach. If I didn't have to preach, I'm exhausted from my late airplane trip, and I'd probably be sleeping. I'm sorry. Um, But I'm here because I I want to be and I need to be. You are here because you want to be, hopefully, and you need to be. You want to worship God with the body. Creation is here because God exists. Because what? Because he is, right? He is. Anyone else have a better answer? God doesn't need Oh, sorry. Number three. The third thing we can see that Yahweh 
is a, be, is a being name, not a doing name. The name Yahweh describes his essence, his nature, his being. He is. It's a name that doesn't describe what he does, but who he is. His nature, not his function. His essence, not his actions. All of what Yahweh does comes out of all who, of who he is. That's why it's appropriate before we go into all the other Yahweh names there that describe his actions and, and outpourings. Um, it's, it's important to understand what Yahweh means first. God doesn't need to do anything. He doesn't owe you or me anything. He, doesn't, he hasn't done uh, things for humans because it helps his self-esteem. That's why I do things for people. I mean, I, I actually love people and I do things and I'm here. I, I, I want to serve. But you know what? Sometimes that feels good, right? And uh, being a human and an imperfect human in a, in a broken world, I don't know if it's possible for us on this side of glory to do something purely altruistically. But uh, by God's grace, as, he, as we get more Christ-like, uh, we, we grow in that, right? But God doesn't need self-esteem to do things, to do things for self-esteem, right? He doesn't need to do anything. Um, he, he's not impressing anyone. He doesn't need to do anything for you. He just wants to. He loves to do things for you, but he doesn't need to. He was a creative God before creation, a loving God before he made creation to love, a good God before he called his creation good, a powerful God before he displayed it, a glorious God. Why is that important? Because he's God whether we see him as God or not. Whether we're in the desert and we haven't, we haven't uh, heard from him, or seen him working in our lives for a really long time, whether that's happened or not, God is still God. Whether we perceive what he's doing or not. In Habakkuk, I'm going to paraphrase. You can look at it in the end. He just, he just, he just, I love this. He, um, he says, whether there be fruit on the vine or no, whether there be calves in the stall, whether there be sheep in, if there, if there's no sheep in the fields, all the things that they would value in that culture as an agri- agricultural culture, um, whether all that's gone or not, and, and for us, like whether there's no bank, if there's no bank or money in the bank, if there's no job tomorrow for you. If there's no spouse to be with, if there's no kids at home, if there's no child in your womb, yet I will praise him because he's still God. He just is. He's still good. He's still loving. It is still well with my soul. If God is not God, regardless of what he gives us, we cannot sing that song, honestly. It's not well with our soul because we must have God do something. And it is well. I mean, yes, that song describes it well with our soul because he saved us. And that's good enough. That's all. He didn't even have to do that, right? Um, Number four, the fourth thing we can see that Yahweh is personal. Yahweh, the Lord, the king of the universe, the eternal God, El Olam, whom Pat reminded us of, the creator of everything, Elohim, the God um, and God Almighty, El Shaddai, of whom Jake reminded us last week, is inviting us to call him by his name, Yahweh, the Lord, his personal name. He wants to be known. This Bible is written because the God of the universe wants you to know him. I've told the youth group, it's my new favorite way to describe the Bible. Um, it's a autobiographical treasure map. God is writing this through men about himself and calling himself the treasure we must all find. And he, 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 this, is, this is why he's written it. And he is our treasure. Autobiographical treasure map. Not only does he want to be known, but he wants to draw near to us. He doesn't want a separation from us. The separation was our doing. We see this on the first pages. So scroll back on your digital Bibles or go to the first pages of your analog, 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 analogical, analog Bibles and look at Genesis 1 and you will see, if you just scan, like speed read it, you see one word over and over again. What is it? God. Elohim the creator, all throughout the first chapter, right? God said, and God said, and then there was, and then there was, and God said, and God called, and God saw God. He's the object. He's the, he's the character. He's the main person in that chapter doing all the work, God. And then scan a little further in chapter two, we see a new name for God introduced, this name Yahweh. Lord God, all caps, Yahweh Elohim. 
And why is he introduced that name? It's because here he's zeroing in on his, the, the apple of his eye, the treasure, his treasured possession, you and me, humans, who he created in his image. And so when he gets down, and as Tim Keller says, he gets his hands dirty. He forms man out of the dust and breathes into him life. God is near. It's Yahweh at that point. Yahweh Elohim. Not just God, like creator God. I used to think, um, when I grew up in the church and I heard the creation story, I used to think it was a distant God, like lobbing things into like a basket of creation. And when he made man, he was like, there's some dust. And like, poof, man just popped up. I used to think that. But now, if you really read this, it's God is here. He's getting his hands dirty. He is sculpting out of dirt a man in front of him. As near as this podium, he is physically there, I believe. And he breathes life into him. And we see that again in verse 21 when he makes Eve. Read with me. So the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs. And this is talking about surgery. Like this, is, this is talking about hands in there. And closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And catch this verb. And brought her to the man. Not sent her from afar. Here, I'm going to take Eve, come over here, make you, throw you back in. No, come here with me. I'm going to bring you. He's there. That means from the very beginning, God's showing us something about himself in that name. Lord, Yahweh is near us. He wants to be. No separation. The separation came from us, not from him. From sin. Okay, maybe notes are good here. Okay, um, the Lord was there. Chapter 3, enter Satan. Follow along with me. And separation. Let your eyes scan from chapter 3, 1 through 7. The word Lord is gone. It's just Elohim at that point. During Adam and Eve's encounter with sin and the serpent, they aren't personal anymore. There's distance. Satan and Eve both refer to God as Elohim only. Did God really say? Not Lord God, but did God really say? Or Eve said, but God said, and so on. It's hard, you know, it's hard to sin and act like God when you know God's near you. And so it's so much easier to sin when you ignore him. So much easier to sin when you're like distancing yourself from him. That's what they're doing. And then later on, though, after that, verse 3, 8, look at that. The Lord God comes back. Yahweh comes back. He draws near again. And they heard the sound. Sound waves hit their ears from, the, from God's feet. Walking in a physical garden. Do you think about that like that? One day we will be with him like, like that again. But now, because of the sin, we're broken. But, but God, walking in the garden the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of who? The Lord God. It gets personal again, because God is like, why would you do this? It hurt him. The separation. God wants to be near us. Yahweh wants to be near us. Number five. Last thing for our time this morning to understand about Yahweh, what it tells us about God, is that he is a deliverer. So we're going we're to spend the rest of our time back in Exodus 3 to see that. So you can turn back there, but see the slides there. Where, so we have God Almighty and God the Creator and, and God the Eternal One and Yahweh Yir is God the Provider and Yahweh Tzedkenu is God the Righteous One and Yahweh Rohi is uh, the, the Lord is my Shepherd and Yahweh Shalom is the Lord is my Peace. Where is the Lord is my Salvation? Where is the Lord is Merciful? Where is the Lord is Compassionate? And gracious. You know, these are the attributes of God that you, if you come here every week, you will hear us because we, are, we want to be gospel centered. And, and the gospel is, is proclaiming that God is our deliverer and he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. Why don't we have a name up there that says that? Well, we do. It's, a, it's Yahweh. That is the name in the Bible most associated with his mercy and his deliverance and his compassion and his love. And, and it's expressed most fully in Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Jesus is embodiment of deliverance. 
Yahweh is that name. So the attributes of God we cherish most are in that name. And we can see it in chapter 3 of um, Exodus. Think about the timing when God decided to reveal his name to Moses. Right before he was going to enter the promised land and do this amazing work of deliverance on the scale of a whole nation. Millions of people. And, and this event, God would always refer back to, remember this. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh, who saved you, who delivered you from Egypt. And this is a picture of the gospel. It's, 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 we're, it's Jesus uh, and, and God pulling us out of sin. That's what this is. And he always hearkens back to it. That, that's why at, at this particular moment in scripture, that's why God decides to reveal this special name, my personal name, my saving, delivering, covenantal name. A little later, I lied to you. Uh, we're going to actually look at Exodus 34, two and 34 and go back to Exodus 3. So if you turn to Exodus 34, after, after the deliverance, after they get into the promised land, this is what God says to Moses. And, and Moses is like, you know, God's a frustrated with his people because even though he saved them full of Egypt, you know the story, they're grumbling anyway. Like, God, couldn't you do more for me? Like, I want bread now when I want it. Sounds like the same culture we live in. I want this now when I want it. Why can't we be in the promised land now? Why are we wandering around? Let's get there now. Where's our leader? Grumbling. And God's like, okay, I'm not going to want these people anymore. You, if you want to be alone, go for it. And Moses is like, no, you got to act in your name. You said you're our covenant God. You have to be with us. So I'm not going without you, God, please. And God listens to Moses amazingly. And, and, and God says, okay, I will go with you. And then Moses says, show me your glory. That's in, in chapter 33. And then we can zoom in on 34. And this is an awesome thing that God does. Verse 6, 34, 6, Exodus. The Lord passed First, the Lord descended in the cloud, verse 5, and stood with him there, like uh, hearkening back to the creation, and proclaimed the name of Yahweh to Moses. Yahweh is proclaiming Yahweh. So, so verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Out of all the things God could have proclaimed about himself, he chose that. Mercy, grace, compassion, forgiveness. That's what he wants us to remember. He is all those other things. He's big, he's mighty, he's huge, he's beyond description. And what he wants us to remember, he's merciful and gracious and slow to anger. Isn't that awesome? Forever. And that verse is quoted over and over again because that's what he wants us to remember about him. And he wants us to remember it so much that he embodies all that in, in becoming flesh in the form of Jesus. Yahweh saves and Jesus is merciful, compassionate. He embodies all that. That's why he wants us to remember it. So those are the five things. He's above and beyond description. He's self-existent. He's, it's a being name, not a doing name. He's personal, and he's the deliverer. So now we're going to go back to Exodus 3 and kind of just unpack, like, what does this mean for us now? What did it mean for Moses? And then and how can we apply it to us with the time that's left? First, you can see God's mercy and love and forgiveness and grace in this chapter, right? Verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. Regardless of how you feel, and if you haven't seen God work in a while in your life and you feel dry, he sees you. He hears your pleas. He hears your cry. He knows your suffering. Trust in it. He might not be there right when you want him to, the way you want him to, but he is there listening. That's what this chapter should tell us, the story. His mercy and grace are surely evident there. What's Moses' response to this? You know, he's, this, and this, this passage was pivotal in, in my life um, and still is, I think. Um, I didn't, 
when I was, I felt whatever called means, I, I don't, we might get that word mixed up, but I felt like led. And I think that God was leading me to be a pastor here. And I was very reluctant. Um, and and I, I saw myself in the brokenness of Moses and his doubt and his fears. And, and I saw, but I saw God bigger than that. And, and so I hope that's, that we can see that too. What is Moses' response? So first, he, he complains five times to God. Like he, he resists God's call five times. The first one is in verse 11, chapter 3. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And so what's he asking? What's he saying? He's saying, I'm nobody. Like, I, I, I'm nothing. And, and the Lord says, but I will be with you. He doesn't deny the fact that he's nothing, because he is. He just says, I will be with you. It doesn't matter that you're nothing. Somebody from the first service who heard me said, like, that was a perfect opportunity, Chris. You could use the phrase, like, from the uh, childhood elementary school, I know you are, but what am I? Like, God's saying that to Moses. I know you're nothing, but look at me. That's the answer. Number two, his protest in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? What's Moses really saying? He's saying, I have no credibility before these people. And Lord says, I am. I am your credibility. I am all you need. I am your credential. Not what you can do. Not what you can't do. The third protest, the third thing, chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord Yahweh did not appear to you. And what's he saying? I have no power, no skill, no ability. And, and again, God doesn't deny that. He says, but here's my power. He shows him the staff and it turns into a snake and he puts his hand in his pocket and pulls it out and it's leprous and then it's healed again. And that's power, right? So show them these signs. That's your power, my power. And then, and then protest number four, uh, chapter four, verse 10. But, but Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And so what's he saying? Uh, I'm not skilled enough. I'm deficient. Before it's like, I'm, I have no power, but now I'm just like, I don't have the skills. And Lord, the Lord says, essentially, I made you. I made your mouth. Actually, I made your mouth deficient. I believe that's the truth here. And there's like a, a side here. There's a theological um, nugget here that we have to wrestle with. In verse 11, it says, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? What? Who makes him mute or blind or deaf? God. So like, you know, that's something that Lori and I have had to wrestle with having, um, you know, Zach, like special needs, like, okay, is that an accident? Is that a result of sin? Or did God knit him together with deficiencies to show his all sufficiency, to show his glory, to show that we are dependent upon him? So you might be made with a deficiency. You know what? Uh, you, there are skills you don't have. And God decided not to give those to you. So maybe when life requires those skills of you, you should depend upon him and try to or, or, or others around you that God gave you. That's what he's saying. He, he designs deficiencies in us to show that he's sufficient. That's, that's a theological thing to wrestle with. Um, it'd be good to study. Number five, here's the truth. This is, this is the fifth protest Moses gives in verse uh, 13. He said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. He's finally getting honest, right? This is really what is in his heart. He's just afraid. He just doesn't want to go. God, send someone else. And what does the Lord say? Anger comes out. He said, he basically says, did you not hear me? I will go with you. I am sufficient. I made you. I will show my power in you. I will speak for you. I am. Moses is like, I am not. God's like, it's not about you. It's about me. Principle number two. So that, that was, sorry, that was principle number one. When we remember who the Lord is, we remember who we aren't. It's important for us to know who we're not. 
Principle number two, when we remember that the Lord, what the Lord has done, we remember what we can't do. We for sure have to do things on this earth. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do things. Like Paul, a hero of our faith, and Jesus, uh, the, the founder of our faith, are two of the most active, busy human beings who ever walked the planet. They're doing things. They're going. But the question is, is was, what was what they did, their identity? And that's where we get, the culture gets in us, and we think that what we're doing for God is our identity. And it's not. We do things out of who we are. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, being in him, that, that's a being thing, and to die is gain. But if I'm to live in this flesh, that means fruitful labor, that's work, that's doing. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He's hard-pressed between the two. We are to be engaged in fruitful labor, Christians, brothers and sisters. Jesus' statement in John 8, 58, and this all culminates with Jesus, right? He says in John 8, 58, you remember this, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh in the flesh. That statement. The words I am in Greek use the same expression, ego, imai, found in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And, and, and in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am, we just read. Jesus is thus claiming, it's the same word. So Jesus is thus claiming not only to be the eternal, but eternal, but also to be the God, so eternal before Abraham, but he's also claiming to be the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. His Jewish opponents understood his meaning immediately. You can study this on your own, John 8. And they picked up stones to stone him to death for blasphemy, for taking the Lord's name in vain, the third commandment. The Lord revealed his name to Moses and has continued to identify himself in connection with his acts on Israel's behalf and mainly in Jesus. Yahweh is represented in Jesus more fully than anywhere else in Scripture. You want to see or describe Yahweh, you look at Jesus and describe him. That's, that's why he came to reveal Yahweh to us. Blasphemy is a big deal. Taking his name in vain is a big deal. Um, you can go to a bookstore now. You can go to King Supers and see perhaps the cover of a book by Joel Osteen called The Power of I Am. I am all caps. I don't know if you've seen that before or not. Um, perhaps there might not be a more blasphemous title for a book. I can imagine. Um, here's what the jacket says. Here's, here's how this book is promoted. Can two words give you the power to change your life? Yes, they can. In the pages of his new book, best-selling author Joel Osteen shares a profound principle based on a simple truth. Whatever follows the words, I am, will come always looking for you. So when you go through the day saying, I am blessed, blessings pursue you. I am talented, talent follows you. It's, it's another disguised form of the law of attraction. I don't know if you've ever heard that. The secret. I am healthy, health heads your way. I am strong, strength tracks you down. I wonder what African believers, when they say, I am thirsty and water doesn't come, I wonder what that they think about their God. That's just an aside. Joel Osteen reveals how the power of I am can help you discover your unique abilities and, and advantages to lead a more productive and happier life. He ins his insights and encouragement are illustrated with many amazing stories of people who turn their lives around by focusing on the positive power of this principle. You can choose to rise to a new level and invite God's goodness by focusing on these two words, I am. This is like, this is, this is the antithesis of the gospel. One of the best ways to know if someone is truly a believer and shaped by the gospel and their identity is in Christ is how often and increasingly they say the words, I am not. I am not. As someone matures in Christ, the words that are more and more on their lips are, I am not. I am nothing. Our identity comes out of all the things where, where we aren't, not what we do. It's what God does where our identity comes from. He carries along all things by the word of his power, Hebrews. This is saying, that book saying, you carry along all the things by the word of your power. It's blasphemous. If you have the book, if you see it on the street, burn it before someone else can read it. Yes, I did say that. 
burn it. It is blasphemy. It is anti-Christian, anti-Christ, anti-gospel. Um, every time I say I am, which is what you know, it's proposing, that's when I sin. You know, I am powerful. I don't need you, God. I am sufficient. I am, I, I am in need of this, so I am going to provide myself with this. I am going to work harder so I can... That's, those are the words of, of sinning. Those are the words of turning away from God. I am not smart enough, or I am smart enough and strong enough to not need you, God. That's what our culture is saying. Uh, that's why the book is so popular, because our culture loves it. A Christian's life is marked by all the things that aren't, and not the things we say, but what, we, but what he says. The more scripture you know, the more I'm impressed with you. Not the more you, you, you could say things like, like you know, one of Job's friends who could just pontificate and, and build himself up. No, it's like, do you know God's words, his words? Jesus, I said this before, we'll wrap up. I know I'm behind. Jesus the word in Hebrew means is Yeshua. Again, no J. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. John 8, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claims it all over, all over the place. In Revelation, you can look at it. I am the Alpha. Jesus is saying this. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Yeshua, Jesus, is Yahweh personified. He was and is and evermore shall be the man you weren't and can't be and will never be. Yet we are still called to be like him, right? To follow him. We're still called to do things. There's a matter of identity uh, that is a matter of identity, not production, right? Our identity is in him. We, we act out of identity, not to gain it. We do things out of who we are. We don't become what we do. Our role as Christians is to serve the Lord with our whole hearts, fulfilling his commands. But doing all those things does not make us who we are. How do we know when we're depending upon our functions? and actions, and occupations, what we do to make us who we are. When we depend on what we do to give us all of what God promises, it's when we attribute what only God can give us to the actions themselves. Example, God doesn't provide, my work does. He isn't almighty, my wealth is. He isn't a God of comfort, my phone is my God of comfort. Our first core pursuit is not a doing pursuit, intimacy with God. It's, it's not a doing pursuit. It's a being pursuit. And actually, it's God's pursuit of us that makes intimacy with him possible. So as we close, um, we think about all these things, and uh, let me, let's consider these questions. How do you know when you're letting your activity shape your identity? and not your identity to shape your activity, which is right. And here's a diagnostic question. When you don't get your to-do list done, not as intentional, and you're not as intentional as you like, and you don't witness like you think you should in the world, how long and how much do you feel guilty about it? It's a diagnostic question to ask. If guilt remains, if guilt lingers, if guilt is powerful in your life, it's an indication of maybe that your identity is not in, 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 your, in being in Christ, but it's in doing things for him. Um, number two, how do you know when you are merely valuing people based on their functional relationship with you and not in who they are in Christ or as a child of God in his image? And here's a diagnostic question. How mad do you get when people don't do what you want them to do? When planes don't arrive, when uh, planes aren't unloaded when you want, when they're not on time, how mad do you get? And how long do you stay that way? The answer is diagnostic. Like, it, it'll, it'll tell you. Maybe, maybe you're viewing people, people's worth and value and what they can do for you and not who they are in, in Christ and, or, or made in the image of God. Number three, how do you know when you're primarily seeing God as a dispenser of good gifts and not the gift himself. Here's a diagnostic question. When he doesn't answer your prayers, when and how you want, and the way you want them, how disappointed and depressed do you get? And how long do you stay that way? How angry do you get with God? 
Jesus came to be the one who isn't. Philippians, he laid aside his I am-ness and became I am nothing. He took on I am nothingness, servanthood. He did everything. Principle number one, when we remember who the Lord is, we remember who we aren't. When we remember what the Lord has done in Jesus Christ, Yahweh saves. We remember what we can't do. Jesus is the Savior. We are not. He has done everything for us. Therefore, we don't have to do what only he can do. You can't save your kids. You can't save your job. You can't save your friend. You can't do enough. Be enough. You have no credentials, no power, no name, no eloquent speech, nothing to offer apart from Jesus. Let me pray. Dear Father, we exalt you because you are who you are. You are everything we need. You're our sustenance. You sustain us. You comfort us. You care for us. You're gracious. You're merciful, compassionate. Thank you for providing Yahweh, Yireh, providing Jesus, you, to us, making your dwelling with us. Lord, forgive us when we try to take your place. Forgive us when we let the culture penetrate us and dwell us, making us think that we don't need you. That we view people who you've made in your image as functions in our life. And when we view you as a dispenser only. Lord, um, Forgive us for that, and Lord, transform us into a body that depends upon you boldly. In our weaknesses, we go forth because your strength will be shining forth in those weaknesses, Lord. You are exalted in our weaknesses, Lord. So how could we proceed in strength? That's only exalting ourselves, Lord. Help us proceed in weakness, knowing and trusting who you are. Um, Lord, in everything this church is, is, is wanting to do in its mission to lead people to a growing relationship with Jesus, Lord, help us depend upon you in every aspect. Help us do that in our work, in our families. Lord, we need you. We pray this in Jesus' name.